And finally this, the promise of this new covenant here. I want to read from Hebrews and chapter 8. I could read from Jeremiah chapter 31, but I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8 just to jump us all the way forward. For of all the passages that may whisper the name of Jesus, this one screams it. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Ready to vanish away. This passage... It's not only the very heart of Jeremiah's prophecy, but it's the very heart of the author of Hebrews' argument concerning the person of Jesus. He's trying to convince us that Jesus is supreme over everything, that our trust is to be in Him and to be in Him alone. And so he lays, he lays this out. And, and, and again, the, the guts of it is this passage from Jeremiah. He says, this is, this is always the way God has meant it to be because He's meant this new covenant to come. The old covenant, though right and good in its time, was temporary, really, always meant to be temporary. The fault in it was not its provisional nature, not its temporariness, if you will. The fault in it was us. The primary fault was the fact that it called for our obedience. And if the covenant is really going to work, if we're really going to be in relationship with God, there needs to be one that enables us to obey. Not only that. But this one was only provisional because it really couldn't satisfy the justice, the wrath of God. It really couldn't satisfy for our sins. Because first of all, the mediators, the one who were the go-betweens, were priests just like you and me. And they had sinned themselves. So how could they really ultimately stand for us? And, and they would die themselves just like you and me. So, so it had to be renewed all the time. It had to, be, had to be done over and over again. And not only that, what stood for us before God were just animals. And an animal really can't stand for a human being. Oh, provisionally, yes, we can say this is a symbol, this is a sign. Uh, there is one to come who's going to fulfill all this and bring it to completion, but, 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 but this animal really can't stand for us. So another needs really to come. And so this promise of new covenant. See, what continued to, to cause the people in, in ancient Judah to come under the judgment of God was because they continued to sin, and, and yet... And rebel against God and not even take advantage of that forgiveness which he gave. And so God says, I'm going to have a new covenant. One that will secure all of this. And of course it comes in Jesus the night that Jesus was betrayed. He stood with his disciples in that that upper room and there he was. And he took the cup that was there at that Passover meal. And he said what? This cup is the new covenant in my Blood, meaning in my death. This cup is the new covenant in my death. And it's given for forgiveness of sins. That's why it's there. 
That's why he's come. Because we know that that's the key component to all of this real forgiveness of sins, to satisfy God on our behalf so that our sins could be washed away, remembered no more, once and done. That's what needs to happen. So notice these great blessings of this new covenant. It says he will write his law upon our our minds and hearts. And he'll be our God and, and, and we'll be his people. We won't need anyone like a priest or anyone to teach us or to be our mediator because we'll all know the Lord because they'll all know him because of Jesus. And he'll be merciful. He'll forgive us and he'll remember our sins no more. He's standing for us. It's always been a question. Who can forgive our sins? You remember there was a time in the life of Jesus there people had crowded into a room and, 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 and some friends had a, another friend who was, who was paralyzed, couldn't make it. And they, they tried to bring him in, but they couldn't get in because there were so many people there. And so they came through the roof, put a hole in the roof, and they came down. And, and Jesus looked at the man, and before he healed him, before he did anything, he said, your sins are forgiven. And that astounded everyone. How can he forgive this man's sins? Because I know two things. Number one, only the offended party can forgive a sin. If you steal from another, I, I can't come and forgive them. You have to do that. Right? Someone steals from you, I mean. And I can't say, oh, I forgive them. That would be crazy. You have to do that. And then on a global scale, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, I know that. So let me show you that I can forgive sins. I can also heal the guy. Which is more difficult to say. Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. So to show you I can forgive sins, this will be the proof of it. Walk. And the man did. It's an interesting book called The Sunflower. Uh, The subtitle is On the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. It's written by not a Christian, but by a man who's Jewish, Simon Wiesenthal. Wiesenthal was a, a, um, one who uh, in Nazi Germany was in a concentration camp for a while, a number of years, spent his life actually tracking down war criminals and Nazi criminals and all of that. And, and while, if you know his life, uh, there have been a couple of movies and a number of biographies and so forth, uh, is some of the details of his life some people suspect. He wrote this book about a situation that he claims was true in his own life. I trust it was, even if it wasn't. It makes for a great thing to ponder. What had happened is that Wiesenthal was in a concentration camp on a work duty detail, and he was kind of pulled out almost arbitrarily and taken by a nurse into the hospital room of a dying Nazi SS young man, young man, 18 years old. And um, the man was dying, and he came to Wiesenthal wanting forgiveness from a Jew for what the Germans had done. And most particularly what he had done, because he remembered a situation that had been a great atrocity in his own life. He was there under command, of course, but he was there uh, around a house. It was a three-story house. They took 300 Jews, mostly old men, women, and small children in this house. And the house, they had commanded some of the Jewish people to take cans of gasoline and put on the third floor of the house. And so they did that. And after they did that, they locked and chained the doors, threw grenades into the third floor, which means it all blew up, means all the people burned to death. And they were instructed 
that for the people who would try to escape to jump out of the windows, burning generally to shoot them. And this man had participated in all of that. And now he was coming to Wiesenthal and he was saying, I want you to forgive me. Here's how he describes the situation. He said, when I was a boy, I believed with my mind and soul in God and in the commandments of the church. Then everything was easier. Uh, If I still had that faith, I'm sure death would not be so hard. But I cannot die without coming clean, he says. This must be my confession. What sort of confession is this? A letter without an answer because Wiesenthal just stood there and listened to him. So no doubt he was referring to my silence, but, but what could I say? He was a dying man, a murderer who didn't want to be a murderer, but who had been made into a murderer by murderous ideology. He was confessing his crime to a man who perhaps tomorrow must die at the hands of these same murderers. In his confession, there was true repentance, even though he did not admit to it in so many words. Nor was it necessary for the way he spoke, and the fact that he spoke to me was proof of his repentance. Believe me, I would... Be ready to suffer worse and longer pains if by that means I could bring back the dead, he said. Many young Germans of my age die daily on the battlefields. They have fought against an an armed enemy and have fallen in the fight. But but, but I'm left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew and that's enough. I said nothing. The truth was that on his battlefield he had also fought against defenseless men, women, and children. And the aged, I I could imagine them enveloped in flames, jumping from the windows to certain death. He sat up and put his hands together as if to pray. I want to die in peace. And so I need. I saw that he could not get the words past his lips, but I I was in no mood to help him. I, I kept silent. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death time and time again, I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you. But without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Now, there was an uncanny silence in the room. I looked through the window. The front of the building's opposite was flooded with sunshine. The the sun was in the heavens. There was only a small triangular shadow in in the courtyard. What a contrast between the glorious sunshine outside and the shadow of this bestial age here in the death chamber. Here lay a man in bed who wished to die in peace, but he could not, because the memory of his terrible crime gave him no rest. And by him sat a man also doomed to die, but who did not want to die, because he yearned to see the end of the horror that blighted the world. Two men who had never known each other had been brought together for a few hours by fate. One asked the other for help. For the other was himself helpless and able to do nothing for him. I stood up and looked in his direction. And as folded his hands between them, there seemed to rest a sunflower. At last, I made my mind, and without a word, I left the room. Now, the end of what he writes, Wiesenthal asked this question. Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience of the reader of this episode just as much as it once challenged my heart and my mind. There are those who can appreciate my dilemma and so endorse my attitude, and there are others who will be ready to condemn me for refusing to ease the last moment of a repentant murderer. The crux of the matter is this, is this of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgiving is something that time alone takes, I'm sorry, forgetting is something that time alone takes care of. But forgiveness is an act of volition, and only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. 
You have just read this sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? Now, the rest of the book, you can see it's quite long, the rest of it, of various ethicists who've written in response to that question. Get the book, it's interesting. Mostly wrong. At the end. But he did recognize this Wiesenthal. He did know that he was in a position not really to forgive because this man hasn't affronted him personally. The offended were dead. How could he relieve their forgiveness? But there's something that's not mentioned here by him, and that is always the most offended party is God. Always the most offended party by our sin is God. Do you remember how David put it? David, who had sinned against just about everybody. I mean, he had sinned against Bathsheba by being unfaithful with her. He had killed, lied about, killed her husband, essentially Uriah. He had sinned against, therefore, her family, his family. He had sinned against the nation. But he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't sin against all these other people. That didn't mean he had things to get right with other people. But, but he knew that the most offended party always was, always was God. Thus, Jesus, when this man comes to him, and he can say, I, I, I forgive your sins. We need to realize that in our lives. What is the problem, if you will, with all of humanity is that we've offended God. And only from him can come forgiveness. And he says only forgiveness from him can come through Jesus what he has done because you see the forgiver always pays when one forgives it always costs when you loose someone from what they owe you you pay what was owed was life God himself paid it that we might live thus, Jesus. This is the new covenant. Sins forgiven in my blood. For many, all who trust in me, all who identify with me. And you see, what flows from that forgiveness in the new covenant is that we then come to really know the Lord. We're no longer afraid of him. We no longer realize that when we come to him, he's going to judge us. Now when we come to him, he forgives us because we come in Jesus. And so once knowing that, that he's the forgiver of sins, to know that, and to know that he's the forgiver of sins in Jesus, to know that is to come to him and to really know him, to be intimate with him once again, to know that he is our God and we are his people, not to ever be rejected by him. And to know as well all of that because he changes then our hearts in the midst of that. He inclines our hearts to him. He writes his law upon our hearts. He writes it upon our minds so that now that we are then inclined to him, that new covenant. Prophet Jeremiah whispers the name of Jesus, screams it. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing for us even to think that we're forgiven. That you would take it upon yourself to do that work 
perhaps it isn't so amazing anymore. Maybe we're just so accustomed to it that it just sort of flows off our minds and out of our mouths and we go off and live. May we never, ever, ever take it for granted. So I pray, God, for me and for us, that we would live as those humbled, we would live as those grateful, we would live as those who worship you because of all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray especially for those who are suffering on these, on this day with various kinds of things. We know there are those who wonder if they really belong to you. I pray you would strengthen them and give them assurance. There are those, Father, who wonder if they belong to you because of the difficulties that are happening in their own lives. I pray that you would grant to them assurance that you are indeed with them. That they do belong to you, that you as their Heavenly Father are growing them up, maturing them, giving them holiness. Father, I pray, especially as I think of the Markley family, as they still grieve Marty's dad's death, sudden death. Be with them, grant them strength. Others who grieve loss, others who find themselves in difficult financial situations, others who find themselves in relationships that are trying and difficult and strained. And Father, we wonder, what should we do? How should we love? What's our right response here? Give us wisdom. Father, especially be with those who are called to share the gospel on a regular basis, who are those who are out in front lines, perhaps, in difficult situations at the university, in various countries throughout the world. And even us in our neighborhoods and with our friends and with our families, Father, as we share the gospel, I pray that the word of God would move swiftly and it would be honored, God, and that many would come to know you and profess faith in you this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you that in about 10 or 15 minutes we'll regather in here. So if you have children, get your kids and come on back and we'll spend a few minutes praying together, thinking together of this um, new project underway to the north of us. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing His will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing.